Today, in the science behind your salad, we're looking at the rising cost and diminishing availability of food. Food is becoming more expensive than anything in this life. Right now, wheat flour is being sold at 200 shillings per packet. It was being sold at 140 shillings. It's expensive and at the same time, cooking oil is expensive. So cooking chapati is becoming another different thing here in Kenya. We have to cook chapati only during Christmas and maybe festive only. And we'll be exploring some of the solutions as the challenges that have been predicted for so long begin to take hold. Parts of Europe are burning. We saw in the Ahr Valley in Germany a massive flooding. People were killed. Who's paying for those social costs? The challenges we see with climate change, with food security, with energy prices, with inflation, this is unprecedented. Welcome to the science behind your salad from BASF. In this series, we travel the globe in search of the best crops and explore the innovations and technology used by farmers as they carry out the biggest job on earth. Today, we're taking a step back to look at how the world is reacting to a perfect storm. Our first stop is Kibera. Kibera is the largest slum in Kenya and thought to be home to around 250,000 people. Most live in shacks and only one in five has electricity. Those living in Kibera strive to get by and so when food prices rise, they are on the front line. Here's more from Stella. Stella lives in Kibera. This is where I live with my small family. I have a young boy, five years old, and I live with my mom and my two cousins. The price of meat has gone too high, like it is a double price. Even price of cooking oil is too high, like it's doubling itself. You minimize and make sure you don't eat that large amount of food because the food is too expensive to afford. And there is no job here in Kenya, so even getting that money to purchase food, to buy the food, is not easy. So we have to come up with divisions like, if today we have to eat ugali, we eat it maybe at around 4 or 5 p.m. in the evening, then we can sleep, wake up the other day. We take maybe tea and something, and we go again for a whole day. We, we just have to tolerate because the situation is becoming difficult, and we have to bear with it. Sometimes we have to go and purchase um, maize from the rural areas, and again it's a cost because we have to use transport. Everything is becoming difficult to survive. The war in Ukraine is much being talked about because we believe most of the things are being imported from Ukraine and Russia. We want to believe that maybe one day if that war comes to an end, our life will get back to the way it was. Even if it will not be that the way it was exactly, but it will make a, a little difference from the way it is right now. Stella has a strong understanding of the impact that world events are having on what she eats, how much it costs, and how many meals per day she can allow herself as a result. Michael Koloki is a journalist based in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jane. I asked him how widely the ramifications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine are being felt in his country. Well, we've seen the price of maize flour, I should say specifically, uh, go up over the past uh, several months. Now, it has gone up by a few Kenyan shillings. But that in itself has had an impact, especially on low-income wage earners. So an increase in the price of maize flour, which is a staple here in the country, 
can therefore determine whether some families will eat or not. This comes at a time when the economy is already strained. The country is just recovering from the COVID pandemic. And so you find that a lot of Kenyans are struggling financially. And Mike, tell us about what maize is used to make in the Kenyan diet. Maize is used by many to make a meal called ugali. And ugali is a meal made from maize flour. If I was to describe it, it would be something similar to perhaps polenta, which is an Italian dish. Many Kenyans around the country have ugali on a daily basis. And it's made by basically putting maize flour into a pot of um, of boiling water and continuously stirring it as you add more maize flour until it forms a sort of what I would describe as a pulpy substance. And then it's basically ready to eat. And many people would eat that with kales, which are commonly um, referred to here as skumawiki in Kiswahili. So, you know, the, the maize flour, Jane, I should say, can be substituted for other kinds of flour, such as sorghum or millet. But generally, for thousands, if not millions of people in the country, if there is no maize flour, there is no gali. And just digging a little bit more into that, the point about substitution, is that down to choice or is that down to availability of alternatives? I would say a little bit of both. When I was growing up and there was a major drought in East Africa, that was in 1984. And I remember vividly that we did not have as much food as we usually would have on the table because my mom was used to cooking ugali, but there was no maize flour. However, in our farm, there was cassava, there were yams such as arrowroots, and it is known, for example, in West Africa, they make a form of ugali fufu from cassava. But in our area, we basically did not use those foods, although they were available. And it is generally because one, I would say, perception-wise, perhaps many Kenyans feel that it is maize that is the main source of food. It might be that there are other food sources available, but how do you then change the tradition of eating food to eating other kinds of food? So generally, it's, it's a whole mishmash of reasons as to, you know, why then our Kenyans really heavily rely on maize. How much of the maize that's consumed is produced within country and how much is imported? Well, according to data published on the Kenyan Parliament website, in 2018, Kenya imported just over 838,000 metric tons of wheat from Russia and 191,000 metric tons of wheat from Ukraine, with a combined total from both countries accounting for just over 59% of the total wheat imported into the country. Kenya imports about $2 million of maize from Ukraine and Russia about $10 million worth. Kenya has relied on maize imports from the East and Southern African region to show up its deficit. Over the years, we've had a fluctuation in, in harvests in the country. And this has led basically to incidences whereby the country has almost had to increase at some point its imports, basically to show up the maize amount that it needs. And also, crucially, Jane, just to note, the country 
imports fertilizer from that region. So if there is no fertilizer, then it becomes a problem. Or if then the government has to rely on fertilizer from other areas, which might be more expensive than fertilizer from Russia and Ukraine, then that will increase the cost for farmers and maybe make it more difficult for them to decide to grow maize. Now, with no defined end in sight, coupled with poor harvests locally in the country and also in the region, then this is quite likely, Jane, to keep the situation spiraling downwards. And going back to Stella, what is she facing as we go forward in terms of how she lives and the choices that she's going to have to make to feed her family, to clothe her family, to educate her family? I predict that it might be difficult days ahead because if the price of maize and wheat flour continues to rise, Stella and her family can no longer afford to buy maize. Will it mean that they will go hungry? Will it mean that perhaps they may need to relocate back to their rural area where things might even be more difficult because back there perhaps they may not have a piece of land where they are able to grow any food? Will then other Kenyans follow suit whereby they will increase the pressure on food in those areas as well? And I was speaking to a young person in an area that I visited the other day. And he was telling me that for young people, what happens if prices go up and they feel that, you know, they don't have any alternative and have to in involve themselves in vices? And this is due to frustration. So I think the increase in the price of food can lead to various setbacks for the country, both socially, economically, and culturally. There are tough times ahead, not only for Stella and the nations like Kenya that rely on imported food from Ukraine and Russia, but also for more and more of us because food supply systems and routes have become more and more global. Gita Sethi is the global lead for food systems at the World Bank. Gita believes that COVID and the war in Ukraine have focused the minds of farmers, political leaders and private financiers as they look to the future. COVID hit the low-income countries, so they were already pretty bad. But now it's the middle income and the countries that are relying on imports in terms of their um, staples that have been hit very hard. I think the war on Ukraine did a few things. First, this reliance on certain geographic bread baskets. We need to diversify, which means that it's not about all countries now beginning to say, oh, how do I grow rice and wheat? But essentially, what are some of the indigenous crops that they, they have a comparative advantage in? So definitely a much more diversified uh, food system, uh, I think, is, is critical. There is enough wheat in the storage in Ukraine and Russia. The issue is how do you get it out? Trade finance needs also a, a, a big focus because the cost of getting food out has gone up so much. We had forgotten about trade finance for the longest time. And now uh, a lot of companies are running around looking for financing to help them get, uh, move food around. With great urgency and some difficulty, we had managed to get private finance flowing into the food sector for decarbonization. 
Now, because of the crisis and this concern, the private finance is being pulled out of the food sector. And so that's also a little concerning um, going forward. 53% of world fertilizers come from Russia, Belarus. So suddenly there is a fertilizer crisis, which is not about addressing today's food security. It means that there is going to be an impact for the next two to three years because of the impact on production. So a lot of uh, alarm bells. But Gita believes there are other problems in the supply chain that can and should be tackled. Food loss and waste is suddenly very important to governments because we have food and nutrition insecurity increasing and yet 30 to 40 percent of produce is being lost. It's a moral imperative to get that right. We've argued for food loss and waste from climate but there's a very strong import substitution as well, trade balances. For example in Rwanda we showed that If Rwanda reduces its losses in tomatoes, which is like 70%, it needs to import less. But the world has more tomatoes to eat at no additional carbon footprint or natural resource crisis. So it's a very strong import substitution argument as well. And I think a lot of countries are waking up to that. And what role does the humble farmer play? According to Gita, the role of the farmer should be elevated Farmers in agriculture both have key roles to play. Farmers are a very critical focal point in this entire journey of food and nutrition security because they can also ensure uh, adequate carbon sinks. Um, They can ensure water efficiency, fertilizer efficiency, quality of food. It's not just about producing food anymore. It's also guardian of eco-services. Despite this short-term crisis. No one has taken their eyes off the medium term and the long term, which is this major transformation that has to happen. I think there is also a very strong commitment among uh, women leaders and uh, all generations, the emerging leaders, the established leaders, and that is an energy that we haven't had. So I'm also very optimistic. And then some of the New technologies, um, now whether it's right, wrong, what are moral views, I don't know. But the fact that soilless production is possible, I am confident that this crisis will not be wasted. Dirk Wurster is Vice President of Sustainability Strategy for BASF. Events currently taking place in the world right now are firmly on his radar. Already there are around 1 billion people on the planet who are struggling for food. And the current crisis can, according to Dirk, be described as the five C's. Let's describe them as the five C's of uncertainty. The first C is COVID. I think we came out of COVID and we saw the first disruption of supply chains, which we didn't expect it because we were running a global business. Not only we at BSF, but generally we're expecting we order it and even depending where you order it, it's two hours later there or 24 hours later. And now we are facing significant supply chains in all industries. So that's the first C, COVID. The second one is, I think, unprecedented, is about conflicts. And if you just look at Ukraine war and you're seeing what this conflict really does in terms of energy supply, but even more on food security. And if you just look at the amount of wheat and sunflower to a certain degree produced in Ukraine and Russia, and if you just look at the global inventories, let's take wheat, for example, 
we are talking roughly 120 to 140 days inventory, which would mean if you don't harvest anything today, you know, our inventory in wheat would last four weeks if we would continue to consume in this manner, which is a rather short period of time. So how dependent are we on food supply, food security issues, and what does it really do for us? And then certainly I think the topic of costs, which have really been increased. Take cost for energy, fertilizer. Farmers need to fertilize when they need to fertilize. They can't say, okay, fertilizer prices are high, let's wait for half a year. No, it can't. So I think the cost of our production, inflation, this is something which really drives the topic. And if you then add climate change as the 4C, what does climate change do to food security? Unprecedented heat in the southern European area, you see the river Po doesn't contain water anymore. Rice production in North Italy will be down. We are experiencing a lot of yield penalties and you can just simply say one degree hotter means up to 6% losses in wheat, significantly hampering our food security, food supply by climate change. And the last C is cities. We're losing valuable acre land day by day due to urbanization. And of course, you have climate change with desertification on top of it. So we're producing more people on the planet. We're expecting 3 billion more people on the planet. Roughly 60% of those people will live in cities. So cities will grow. Again, less acres, more people. If you talk about 2 billion, this means 100 cities of the size of Mexico will be new. And this is, I think, unimaginable, but this will come. So the fifth C is cities. And to really sum it up, what it deserves is choices. To stay with our C <laughs> a little bit. So the five Cs of uncertainty result in choices. If farmers have choices to combat climate change for more resilient farming, to let's say foster biodiversity, soil health. If farmers have choices to work on, on, on diseases, etc., etc., and pests to come, they can help to ensure the yield we need because we want to produce with less environmental impact, with a less burden to society, of course of that. But we need to produce more because these three billion more people need to be fed. When Dirk sets this situation out so clearly, the scale of the challenge facing us becomes absolutely daunting. We are having to work super hard to keep the current population alive and resources are terribly stretched. So trying to feed an extra 3 billion mouths is going to be really tough. Dirk does have some solutions and we'll hear from him later in this episode. But how does the short-term future look? James Walton is Chief Economist for IGD. IGD provides supply chain analysis and James explained some of the cost of living crisis and how it's biting. As you would expect, the, the poorest households are going to be the most vulnerable because they, of course, spend a higher proportion of their income on food than the middle or the upper classes do. And if they're already living fairly precarious financial lives, it doesn't take very much to push them into real hardship. And what we are seeing is that increasing numbers of households report missing at least some meals for financial reasons, especially those households that have um, have children in them. Because, of course, it's not just food that's going up, it's, it's everything else that's going up. Um, in fact, the most powerful driver of uh, household inflation at the moment is actually household utilities. So it's your electricity and your gas. And those things will continue to go up. A big part of the equation is um, just how rich you are to start with. Uh, you probably heard of something called the Engels Law. The Engels Law says that 
basically the poorer you are the, the the greater the proportion of your household budget you will spend on on basic food and drink and so if i was a household in bulgaria for example i may well be hit much much harder simply because i'm allocating more of my income to to that to food and drink food is a global commodity and as james says while many countries can be self-sufficient in some crops there are still players on the world stage responsible for some of the big crops pretty much all countries in the world produce at least some food for themselves but most food that's produced tends to be eaten within the country in terms of what is traded it tends to be a few really big producers that account for most of the food that's available for trade around the world. Brazil might account for a big part of soybeans or for coffee, you know, it might be Vietnam, for example. So there's a few really big kind of market makers out there. And in things like vegetable oils and grain, the major market makers are Russia and Ukraine. So obviously Russia has been taken out of Western markets, at least as a result of sanctions. And uh, Ukraine is still exporting as much as it can, but clearly its export activity has been disrupted. And its ability to plant next year clearly is going to be disrupted as well. So realistically, I, I think it's going to be several years before either Russia or Ukraine can really return to their previous positions. In, in terms of where that stuff actually goes, most of that goes to places like North Africa, uh, Middle East and down into uh, Southern Asia, a place like Pakistan. So there's a there's a kind of a band across North Africa, Middle East and into Pakistan, which is the recipient of a lot of those uh, Ukrainian exports. So obviously these countries have had to come out onto the open market to start looking for alternate sources of um, supply. And we've actually been here to some extent before, because you may remember maybe a decade ago russia had a series of very poor harvests because of droughts and they shut down exports and what we saw in response was was food prices spiking across north africa and we had what, what was then called the arab spring so so we saw the one event erupting from uh, from the other it's very easy to see large parts of the world vulnerable parts of the world perhaps moving into serious hardship uh, as a result of this 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 awful conflict so the, the the consequences are spreading through the food system the best case scenario would be for a rapid end to the war in ukraine one way or another and those ukrainian farmers back in full production and exporting in in terms of the worst case scenarios uh, I, I think we've actually just highlighted one of them which is bad harvests elsewhere in the world so bad harvest due to either unfavorable weather or, or disease another bad case scenario would be further closure of global trade and we, we've seen some elements of that with places like indonesia and india kind of shutting down uh, some exports but perhaps the spreading of that would, would, would certainly not be helpful globally and this one's a bit more arguable um what you might call speculation in food markets the last time there was a global food price spike, there was actually quite a lot of concern um, raised by people like the FAO about financial investment in the food industry. Is it is it helpful or is it not? You know, so people were trading in things like food futures. Now, some of that is actually incredibly helpful. I mean, these these food futures exist for a reason. You know, they, they were created in order to make food markets work better and actually stabilize prices and help everybody out. But if new people start becoming involved, you start to think, is this helping? I'd certainly say bad harvests and further market shutdowns. It's impossible to predict how each of the five C's will affect us. But what we do know for sure is that population is rising and the climate is becoming more volatile. 
So are there any easy measures that can be taken right now to mitigate these threats? According to UNEP, the United Nations Environment Programme, roughly one third of the food produced in the world for human consumption every year, which is approximately 1.3 billion tonnes, gets lost or wasted. It's a huge amount. And with the world population due to rise to 9 billion in the coming decades, a population rise of roughly one third, well, go figure. So there could be enough food to go around, but in order to prevent that wastage, it's not simply a case of us, the consumers, not buying too much, only to throw food away. And I think those days are beginning to disappear, thank goodness. No, we need to look at the way we grow, the way we store, and the way we transport the food produced by farmers around the world. Here's Dirk again, with his take on the food that doesn't reach the mouths it was intended to feed. Let's divide it into two answers. One is the food loss and the other one is the food waste. So the food loss I would consider is the one of the yield potential which is not harvested from the acre. And here again, our technology innovation could really help. The other question is food waste. So from the harvest, storage, um, uh, infrastructure, down to the refrigerator, we're seeing, depending on the value chain, between 30 and 50% food waste. And Nunham's vegetable breeding, we are really breeding, let's say, now new varieties, melon varieties, which are much smaller in size. We are getting, at least in our areas, into a smaller households, one or two people. They don't need 20 kilo melon. They need one kilo melon to produce it. So this is one thing. Or we're looking at a new tomato variety, which has, even if you cut it, it remains in textures for quite some time. So you don't need to waste it. You can keep it in the refrigerator. So there are areas where, we, where we're seeing the consumer pattern has changed. And what could we do from a breeding perspective? One company, one industry can't make it alone. We need the value chain to cooperate. We need to communicate what's in there. We need more innovative packaging, for example, to keep it longer fresh. We maybe need a different cold storage infrastructure to keep it in the market and, and, and providing it at, in time delivery. And even, you know, we need to think about different ways to agriculture. Because agriculture, we are thinking about is large fields in the Midwest, in Iowa, for example, or if you're in a European context, the smaller fields and orchards. But agriculture in the future will transform. You know, we are looking at different dietary patterns and maybe meat consumption will change, So, which also would t give us an interesting tipping of the balance, how much acres and how many carbohydrates and proteins we need per acre. We are also seeing, for example, um, with vertical farming, um, a different way of working. Why don't you need to ship a salad, which more or less 99% water, thousands of kilometers? You can produce it close to where, where we live, the consumers live. And you can make it in-time delivery. So you reduce the food waste because you're, you just order on demand and delivery in, in, in weeks. I think it will be a balance of various forms of producing food in the future, driven by demand, needs, of course, also by society to pay for that. But I think it will be a balance of things. One of those things Dirk mentions is digital technology. Agriculture really can utilise the full power of the smartphone, bringing up-to-the-minute information directly to the palm of the farmer's hand. In the very first episode of The Science Behind Your Salad, we talked about Ardenna. Ardenna is Arabic for our land and is being used by farmers in Egypt to provide important advice on tackling pests and diseases, but it also connects farmers to their nearest retailers. Ardenna came into its own during the COVID pandemic. 
Here's Inji Zaki from BASF's digital team in North Africa with more. Ardena is a disease warning system. Uh, it helps farmers to proactively protect their crops and lands from the very beginning. Ardena helps farmers to use preventative spraying, which will lead to better yield, um, better quality, increased production output, uh, which in turn will impact the consumers with better supply in the market. The timing of the launch of the service during the COVID uh, was the best time because, of course, being on ground with the farmers to provide uh, on ground uh, services was very limited. So having a digital early disease warning system to farmers helped a lot during the COVID time. A lot of farmers were uh, communicating through social media and uh, even talking to us directly to our technical staff or to our agronomist on, on, um, through the phones. Our dinner is on tomato crop till now for Egypt. So a lot of tomato farmers were very eager to register to the service to know more about what to spray uh, as well for the timing of the spraying. When farmers receive the messages, uh, this is how we communicate uh, to farmers is through uh, SMS, IVR uh, and WhatsApp as well. So they will be able to apply the right dosage and the right product to spray on the right time. One of the three main pillars that we are working with is, of course, the weather forecast and the weather forecast and agriculture play uh, big roles. We also send messages for stewardship to raise awareness on how uh, to use properly the products because safety of farmers is our priority. Most of the farmers, the smallholder farmers, are not really aware of what's happening on ground. So our role is to raise awareness on the challenges like the weather, climate change, for example. So I believe this is what we are aiming for in the coming years. Dirk Wuster calls for a fairer system, fairer prices for those doing the biggest job on earth, and also a fairer way of distributing food for those that need it most. The value of food is, in a way, not only a price which we have to pay, but I think to, to that consumers and we see what it takes to produce it. For example, in Germany, uh, a bottle of sunflower oil, if you could get it for a litre, five euros. Pasta prices increased by threefold because the harvest was down. So we understand, meanwhile, it's not taken for granted. And I think this is where we can take it as an opportunity, deliver technologies, deliver innovations for the better yield, so more produce more with less environmental impact. And on the other hand, get into the dialogue with consumers and through the value chain to explain what we are producing. And this is really existential and we need to produce it in a more Western, Northern Hemisphere world, but even more in the global South. And we're seeing the impact now on the African continent if they don't get wheat from the Ukraine production. So that's one thing, the fair distribution of food, because in one area we have more than that, and the others we can't. And we are currently, you know, due to the short labor, labor shortage crops, are not grown because they don't have people to harvest it. And then there's the question of how to deal with perhaps the biggest challenge we are all facing collectively as a planet. If you look at climate change, let's first of all maintain yields. We're currently realizing much more efforts on yield because what we're currently seeing is a significant yield penalty due to drought or, and climate change is not always drought, it is also the availability of water. Sometimes we have too much water. So what we're looking at is, uh, is first of all, how can we breed and look at varieties 
which are much more climate resilient, which can stand heat better. And then under those conditions, can they increase yield compared to the current existing offers? The other area where we're intensively looking is saying, what could be done with climate smart farming? One area is to reduce carbon emissions, but even more importantly is saying, how can we improve, for example, carbon sequestration in the soil? Because if the, if the soil is more fertile, if there is more biodiversity in the soil, you have better water holding capacities, you have much more fertility. And, and if, if the soil is at the end the asset of the farmer, what can we really do to help farmers to sequester carbon, being having more fertile soils and with more fertile soils selling a different basis? And of course, will diseases and pests change based on climate change? What could we offer? We offer choices to farmers so that they have a toolbox and saying, today I need a hammer, tomorrow I need a saw, and then I need a screwdriver, but they have to have it in the toolbox. If it's not in the toolbox, they can't use it. Last week, I was with the Global Farmer Network, you know, also talking to, to African farmers. And if you see the hungriness for new technologies, and if you see also the professionalism, they are driving it forward. I'm very optimistic that it will come. With the current geopolitical turmoil, it feels as if we are all trying to find our place in the world. And when we do, it could be that we discover that actually we all need to do our own little bit for the future of the planet. We believed it's a global world. We are now seeing politically it isn't. And we are kind of in the process of finding what is global and what is not global. Agricultural production, we are coming back to a point where we understand how existential it is. Depending where you are, go to a tower and just look or take Google Maps. If you look at Google Maps and saying, how many of your gardens in your neighborhood have potatoes, apple trees, carrots, salad in their garden? I would bet below 10%. There is no wonder that we're detached from agriculture, that we don't understand it. And, and, and what do we do to bring agriculture back? I'm not saying you should grow now potatoes in your garden, but on the other hand, it may very well be at one point in time that people rethink saying, yeah, maybe for self-sufficiently, we should have some crops in our garden. Let's give the last word to Stella, striving to get by and feed her family in Kibera. When you break it down, it all seems so simple. We already have enough challenges facing our existence. So why add to them with rather meaningless wars? Maybe then we could concentrate on making sure we all have enough to eat. Maybe if the, the nations in the world decide to, to shout it and cry for peace in Ukraine and Russia or help in the fight to bring it to an end because the more the fight continues, the more our lives are going to be difficult. So what has to be done is just to come together as a world, as a nation, put up our hands together and cry out for peace for Russia and Ukraine and everything shall be well. Thank you for listening to The Science Behind Your Salad. Please subscribe so that you don't miss an episode wherever you get your podcasts.